What would it be like to be living on the last page of despair? I'm not sure we know quite yet. And I want to offer a bit of a warning before I launch too much into the sermon this morning. A warning that I, to tell you that I'm going to be talking directly about the Me Too movement today. I'm going to be talking about the stories we've been hearing in the news and the media, the stories about sexual harassment and sexual assault. And I'm going to be offering one perspective, mine, on what it means to be a person of faith in this moment in time, a person of faith living with and struggling with hope as we approach this darkest time of the year. And I want to invite each of you to listen closely to your own bodies, your spirits, your minds this morning, and to do whatever it is that you need to do to take care of yourself. Maybe that means getting up and leaving right now. Maybe it means leaving during some point in the service, and I want to let you know that's fine with all of us. We want you to do what you need and want to do to take care of yourself. It may also mean that you let these words drift in and drift right out. Maybe you feel what you feel, you feel something else, you just let it all drift around. Maybe you find someone to talk to after the service, somebody that's sitting next to you, or a trusted family member, or friend, or colleague, or counselor. Maybe it's a member of our pastoral care team, or one of our ministers or staff. We are here for each other. No matter what is going on in our lives, we're here to listen deeply to one another if this sermon or if any of the things you've been hearing or reading in the news recently is stirring up feelings or memories or anything that you want to share. We are here for each other. You may also find that you don't have things you want to share with another person, and that is okay too. I absolutely trust that each of us knows what we need when we listen deeply to what our bodies and minds and spirits are telling us. And so I encourage you today and every day, really, to listen closely to that body you have, that trustworthy body, that mind and spirit, to listen to what it is telling you it needs and to go get it. With all of that said and absolutely meant, here we go. It was spring of my final year of seminary, and the buzz around the school was all about what was going to happen next. Where were we going to go serve? What churches were interested in us as new ministers? Where were we going to find jobs or a call that would allow us to live into everything that we had learned and allow us to carry all of our pent-up passion out there into the world? Now, I knew very clearly what I wanted to do. I always had, and I knew what I was best suited for. My particular gifts called me into large church ministry, and since no woman and certainly no queer person had ever made the leap directly from seminary to senior minister of a large church, I adjusted my expectations to associate ministry and to working and growing as part of a team. After all kinds of conversations and reference checking and interviews, I went to visit the congregation that had chosen me and that I had chosen back. The deal wasn't done just yet, but we were close and both of us knew it. The couple of day long visit was kind of billed as an affirmation rather than a question mark. And when I arrived, I was eager to take all of it in. The new town, the congregation and its history and hopes, the senior minister that I'd be working next to for the next several years. I remember the nervousness and the excitement that I felt as I arrived in this new city and picked up my rental car. 
I remember feeling grateful for this opportunity, for a job that had opened up and a congregation that might really fit me and all I hoped to do with my ministry. I remember feeling grateful too for the prospect of a paycheck and the security that it would bring. I hadn't had that for a while and I was really looking forward to it again. Soon the search committee arrived at my hotel and they took me out for a tour of the church and its grounds. It was gorgeous. It was better than the pictures they had sent and they asked me kind and thoughtful questions. Then the senior minister arrived and took me out to lunch. I remember him asking questions that I thought were kind of odd. He was probing around in my personal life, asking a whole lot about my relationship with my girlfriend. I thought this was strange, but I did my best to divert him, to redirect back to how we might work together in ministry and what I might be responsible for in my new position. After lunch, he took me out for a driving tour of the town. I was anxious to learn what it would be like to live there since I'd never been to that part of the country before. I asked about the cost of living because I knew it was high and he just started laughing. He's like, yeah, it's gonna be a little bit of a problem. You probably won't even be able to find a shack to rent on the salary we're gonna give you. But don't worry, you can always moonlight at Hooters. I honestly thought I'd heard him wrong. Nobody would say that, would they? But then there we were, driving past the local Hooters restaurant so he could make his point again. Now, I know the visit continued after that, that we went out to dinner with the search committee and they asked me relevant questions and showed actual concern for who I was and what our ministry might be like together. I know that after that lunch, I started dancing around the questions of a contract, that I began introducing the idea that uh, I hadn't yet made a decision about where I wanted to go. Once I got home, I talked with, co with the colleagues who had recommended me for this position, who had set up the interview, actually, and I told them what had happened. It felt impossible, surreal, really, to say it out loud. And I remember their response, clear as day. I thought he was done with that, they said. I thought he was done with that. Now, there was no conversation about talking to that senior minister directly about bringing my experience back to the search committee or the congregation or sharing what had happened with the UUA or our larger ministerial association. See, I knew who I was in the system and my colleagues did too. I was a brand new 30-year-old queer woman. I was new to the ministry, I wasn't ordained yet. I had no history behind me and now no job ahead of me. It would be my word against his his word as an established, successful, beloved senior colleague, and I would be out there on my own. I backed out of the search process with that congregation and got looking quickly for another opportunity, which, thank God, presented itself and turned out to be exactly the right thing for me. And I'll never forget what those moments felt like. Those moments trapped in the car with him, the establishment of the power dynamic that he set and the feeling of being left out there all on my own. I found myself wondering over the weeks and years that followed if maybe my colleagues didn't think I fit the profile of someone who would be sexually harassed and that's why they felt okay sending me out on this interview. I mean, it honestly hadn't occurred to me to worry about either. After all, I was a lesbian. I was really clear about that. I was a larger woman. I was someone who didn't fit the established model of what beauty looks like in our culture. Maybe they thought he'd leave me alone. 
But what I learned from that experience and what I continue to learn as more people tell their stories is that it never does matter. It doesn't matter what we look like or what we wear. It doesn't matter whether we follow or don't follow the spoken and unspoken rules of our society. There actually isn't anything that a woman can do or not do that will completely eliminate the possibility that sexual harassment or sexual assault will happen to them. It's simply not within our control entirely. And that is totally terrifying. What matters, it turns out, in those moments when the pain occurs, it matters simply that you are a woman or that he thinks you are. What matters is that he is a man living in a culture that tells him he deserves more and that the rules don't apply to him. What matters in those moments is that he chooses to exert the power he has over you in a very broken system that diminishes the lives of all of us. And of course, it matters. It matters a whole lot what place you hold in this world when you are he or she in this moment. It matters a whole lot how much power you have in this life-denying system, and it matters whether there is challenge or isolation or support for either of you. It makes a difference for sure if you feel alone. If you think you are the only person who has ever been hurt this way by this person, it matters when you go from being someone who is carrying this all alone, this thing that makes you feel less than or ashamed, Instead, when you go to being one of many, lined up in the powerful company of strangers and friends, all saying, me too, this happened to me too, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry this happened to you too. Healing is possible. Healing can happen. I want you to heal, and together we can demand justice. This is what the Me Too movement is all about. It's why the stories are coming tumbling out like an avalanche, why women are lining up next to each other, one after another after another, why they are saying, me too, me too, and this will happen no more. <laughs> The Me Too movement didn't start just this fall. It actually began in 2007. It was begun by an African-American activist and youth worker, Tarana Burke. She says it wasn't built to be a viral campaign or a hashtag that is here today and forgotten tomorrow. She said it was a catchphrase. It was something I developed to be used from survivor to survivor, to let folks know that they weren't alone and that a movement a movement for radical healing was happening and was possible. It's this fall of 2017 when a famous white actress shared her experience of sexual assault and harassment and invited others to speak up and to speak out using the hashtag MeToo. Since then, more than 12 million women and girls around the world have shared their experience of sexual harassment or sexual assault on social media. And many more are coming forward now to share their stories with family members and friends and with lawyers and boards of directors. Women are trying to tell the truth about their lives and their experiences, not only for the liberation that it can bring to them, but for the change that they hope it will deliver. The poet Adrian Rich, who we heard from this morning, wrote another poem, many, many of them, and one of the lines was this. 
Did you think I was talking about my life? I was trying to drive tradition up against the wall. Did you think I was talking about my life? I was trying to drive tradition up against a wall. That is what people are doing in telling their stories these days. They are trying to drive the tradition of sexism and sexual assault up against the wall, and it is beginning to work. We've known the statistics for some time. They've been out there forever, that one in four women experience childhood sexual abuse, that one in five women report being raped at least once in their lifetime, that depending on the reports you read, it's anywhere from 25 to 40% of women who say they have been the victims of forced sexual behaviors. We know that this culture, this culture that says that sexual abuse and harassment and assault and exploitation of women, that it is endemic in America, and we know that it's not just women, but men who are harmed by these experiences and by this culture too. We know that there are many men who can also say, me too, to sexual abuse and harassment, especially men who others identify as gay or bisexual or gender nonconforming. We know that it is all of us, regardless of our gender or sexuality, who can say, me too. Me too to living with the experience of being in a culture of oppression that elevates some at the expense of others, that works across race and gender, class and sexuality, ability and age to privilege some while diminishing others. We can all say me too to the harm that this culture that we live within does to each and every one of us. We know this is true, and still it is hard to hear, hard to believe sometimes, and even harder to live within for all of us. Listening to these stories come tumbling out like an avalanche and knowing the experiences that so many of us are living with, it can feel like we are a long way from standing on the last page of despair, that place of hope the poet talked about. And yet here we are, here we are hoping. People of faith hoping that we might live into our belief in the worth and dignity of every individual hoping that regardless of the power that anyone has or doesn't have in this world, that they might be known as whole and holy and treated equitably. Here we are hoping that the accumulation of these stories does in fact drive tradition up against the wall and create change. Here we are hoping that men might join women in demanding homes and workplaces and churches and playing fields and neighborhoods that aren't only just safe, but equitable for all of us. Here we are hoping, knowing that our liberation is bound up with each other, that none of us is free until all of us are free, working together across difference to make the change we want to see real in the world. This is what we are hoping for. And here we are with these stories that are so hard to hear. I'm sure that many of you have struggled, as I have, over these past weeks, listening to them and letting them in, doing this balance of listening to as much as possible and then needing to pull back to give yourself some space. It's a lot to lose so much trust for some of us in our collective community or in individuals, and it's a lot to see the pain that we have mirrored in others. I know for myself I've needed to take it in as I can, when I can, finding some balance and taking some moments for a lot of deep breaths and connecting with people that care about me. 
It's a lot for us to know that there are people that you might know or people that you don't know living out there with these experiences so close to their hearts. And here they are. Here are people living with the experience of being harmed while a public conversation is going on all around them, a conversation they may or may not want to be an active part of. And there are others who are struggling too. People that haven't experienced sexual assault or sexual harassment, they might be struggling with the shock that they're feeling or a sense of luck they might have. Maybe wrestling with a desire to dismiss or deny the reality of other people's experiences and saying, no, no, not that good guy too. But here we are, all of us swimming in this sea of sexism and the harm that it does to each and every one of us, feeling a long way off from that last page of despair. And this is where I find myself turning again, again and again this season to the words of the activist and author, the African-American writer, Adrienne Marie Brown. You've heard me say her words here before, but I think this week they bear repeating. Things are not getting worse. They are getting uncovered. We must hold each other close as we continue to pull back the veil. These are the words that I need to live by these days, not only as we discover again or for the first time the reach that sexual abuse and sexual harassment has into our lives and the lives of those that we love. These are the words that I need to hold close as we see again or for the first time the power that racism and this culture of white supremacy that we live in, the power it has on our lives and the lives of those we love. These are the words that I keep holding close as we see again the power of the few to diminish the lives of the many. Things are not getting worse. They are getting uncovered. We need to hold each other close and continue to pull back the veil. These are the words that are helping me right now to hold hope right next to despair, to know that they are not either or experiences, but rather that they are knit together in a both and way of living with eyes wide open. For so many of us, for activists and for people of faith, we hold on tight to hope and hope alone, to the possibility of a future that is not yet made real, to hope as a motivator, to as a rock to cling to, to keep us from falling into the abyss of despair. We are confronted all the time with the reality of the pain that so many people are living within, the power that exists to resist any positive change. That abyss of despair is real. And it can absolutely be paralyzing. And even though it is a place that I don't really like to go, I don't think it's a place we can entirely avoid as people of faith. As people of faith and as Unitarian Universalists in particular, we are committed to hearing the stories and knowing the heartbreak of our fellow travelers in the world. A spiritual life is not a life when we keep ourselves safe and we push the stories and the pain of others to the side. It is absolutely true that we may need to take some breaks to do some grounding into our body and in our lives as we continue to hear and know the hard truths of others and ourselves. But it is possible for us to grow in the spiritual practice of living with discomfort, of learning to listen first and to listen again and to listen again. We can continue to do the hard work of pulling back the veil, of letting go and mourning the loss of a person or a world as we thought it was, as we hoped it would be. As people of faith, we can live with heartbreak right next to hope, 
with the two of them knit together as we continue to pull back the veil, as we trust that there is solidarity and empathy and another world growing in possibility. Juno Diaz, the award-winning Dominican-American writer, offered these words after the election of our 45th president, and they apply just as well to this moment. Diaz wrote, so what now? Well, first and foremost, we need to feel. We need to bear witness to what we have lost, our safety, our sense of belonging, our vision of our country. We need to mourn these injuries fully so repair will be possible. And while we're doing the hard, necessary work of mourning, we should avail ourselves of the old formations that have seen us through brokenness. We organize, we form solidarities, and yes, we fight to be heard, to be safe, to be free. This is the joyous destiny of our people, he writes, to bury the moral arc of the universe so deep in justice that it will never be undone. What would it mean for us to be living on the first page of the end of despair? What would it mean if we lived in a city where people were changing each other's despair into hope? You yourself must change it, the poet said. What would it feel like to know that your country was changing? You yourself must change it, she said. Though your life felt arduous, new and unmapped and strange, what would it mean, she asks, to stand on the first page of the end of despair? Radical hope is what we need in these moments, Diaz says. Radical hope that is not so much something you have as something that you practice. Radical hope that demands flexibility and openness and imaginative excellence. Radical hope, he says, that makes the survival of the end of the world possible. It is my very real hope that the end of the world as we've known it is actually coming into view that we are in fact standing on the first page of the end of despair, even though I know it's unlikely that we're there yet. It is my hope that the end of the world as we have known it is coming. The end of the world of white supremacy and racism, the end of the world where power is held in the hands of a few while so many suffer, the end of a world where almost everyone in this sanctuary could say me too to a firsthand experience of sexual assault or sexual harassment or to living with its impact on the ones that they love. May radical hope be with us this season. Hope that can sit right next to despair. Hope that we can practice growing in flexibility and openness and imaginative excellence. Hope that says, I hear you, I see you, I believe you, we will make it different. Together, let us drive the harmful traditions up against the wall. Together, let us bury the moral arc of the universe so deep in justice that it can never be undone. Together, let us create a more just and equitable and safer future. May it be so, amen.